What's up everyone and welcome back to the channel. If you feel like you've been dealt a bad hand in life, watch this episode. If you feel like, what if this, I could have done better, watch this episode. If you're feeling bogged down by unfairness, watch this episode. Today my good friend Sean Chang comes in and shares his experience. How he overcame a bad hand in life and used that to motivate him to follow his dreams. How a person can block out all the noise regardless of the situation and focus on a goal. This is my favorite one to date, so strap in and get ready to expand your worldview. As always, smash like, share, you know the deal. Let's do it. But I'm going to push and I'm going to push the envelope maybe in some questions that uh, I think it's my goal is to ask people that may wonder, mm -hmm. but don't have the balls to ask. Right. Because if you meet someone in passing, there are things that you want to say or ask, but you don't really feel comfortable doing it. Yeah. But then we come into the situation here mm -hmm. where it's just me and you and it's an opportunity to address maybe some of these issues. Um, maybe there are questions that you're like, I wish someone asked me, but you don't want to offer up. Who knows where this goes? Uh, but again, if you're like, bro, no, then no big deal. Appreciate the disclaimer. That's very respectable. Um, I'm a pretty open book. I think the more that I have to share, because mm -hmm. it's very hard. Um, I feel like everyone's story is so unique. And if I can share something that you, you really won't have exposure to, I feel like I have the opportunity to share something that you might learn from. Awesome. So I'm going to start at the top because there's people here that are possibly listening and not watching. And even if they're watching, it's hard to tell. But I'm going to address the elephant in the room. And you had a series on a post on your Instagram saying that as well. The elephant in the room is that you are in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And how old are you now? I'm 25 now. 25. So you're 25. You're in a wheelchair. You didn't grow up in a wheelchair. Not at all. What happened? Um, so I was in a motor vehicle accident in January 2016. Uh, pro I think it was the 31st. Um, I was my second year at UGA uh, and I had finished my first round of exams for like accounting, all the major entry business level stuff. And I got my ass beat. And so I had stayed up so much um, like studying and pulling all nighters just to cram as much as I can to be prepared for. And then after I finished all the exams, I was like, all right, let's drive back home. Cause that's what I was doing, going, uh, taking my friends home uh, back to Gwinnett County uh, and spending time with my family on the weekends. Um, it's because it was about only an hour drive from, you know, Buford to, Athens. So that's what I did. I think it was like a Friday or Saturday. It was a Friday night. Um, we drove all the way to Snowflake Tea, Tea House, the one next to Sweet Hut in Duluth. Okay. Uh, and we, we were having like boba. We had dinner, uh, had dessert there, and we got pretty late. It was like 1, 2 a.m. And I was just going to crash at my friend's house because he lives a lot closer. But my dad being as Korean as he was, he was like, oh, like, come home. Like, it's getting way too late. And it was very odd because he's usually, he's very liberal for a Korean, actually. So it, I, I don't know what prompted him to ask that or tell me to come home. But I guess just me not being home often um, enough, <laughs> he, he was like, yeah, just come home and sleep in your own bed. So I was super tired. I was trying to be like, no, dad, can I just sleep over at my friend's house? I, I'll just see you tomorrow morning. But he was adamant. So I was like, OK, I'll go. So we're driving on 85. There's an express portion on 85, right? Mm -hmm. You can um, on the right hand side that takes you to like Sugarloaf Mills all the way to exit 109. Uh, and then you can get on to the actual 85. And so I had fallen asleep on the wheel uh, on on there. And I when I woke up, I was like going 65 miles per hour speed limit. Um, it was, I was like, you know, those moments when you're super tired, you're just like dozing off. 
So I was dozing off. And, you know, some people think are like, oh, were you drunk or, you know, using drugs? I was like, no, none of that. I had boba. That's, I should be awake. I had caffeine, but I was just tired. And so I try to move over to the left lane because I saw that there was a roundabout coming about because there is for a few, uh, certain of those exits. But there was a car like speeding coming through. So I was like, okay, let me just slow down the fastest I can. And because I didn't want to hit him. So when I slowed down, I was like, oh, I should be able to go in. Pavement ran out. And mm. so if the pavement runs out on the, the roundabout, I'm just going straight into the ditch. So I'm on the brakes as much as I can, locking up, and I'm like, oh, shit. And so I hit the ditch, and then it feels like that movie scene. Everything's in slow-mo. Time is like, it, it really stopped to like the millisecond. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And then I'm going, and I hit the tree, and my body just snaps. And then I just lose all sensation of my legs. I'm awake. Uh, throughout this whole thing, I didn't pass that at all. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. And, and in that moment, it hurt for a second and then it stopped. And I think it was all the adrenaline kicking in in that moment. And so what had happened next is like, okay, I'm, I realized my legs are just not moving the way because I thought I was just going to get out of the car just and check up on the car. I was like, man, this is a bad accident. And then I realized I can't move. I was like, and I'm, I'm panicking at this point. And like hysterically laughing, I'm like, you, you got to be shitting me here. Like this, 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 this can't be happening. So I realized no one is coming over to help me. Not even that car that passed by. It's 2 a.m. There's really no cars on that access portion. Everyone's on the main 85. So I'm like, okay, I got to go find my phone. My glasses are on my face. Like my bag, papers all over the car, airbags all deployed. So it was a pretty bad hit. And so I unknowingly had broken my back, um, my T12 uh, vertebrate burst fracture so it split into a bunch of little fragments and actually split uh, a lot of my internal organs i was bleeding internally and i didn't know because i had so much adrenaline coming on so effectively i was dying but i was because of all the adrenaline i was just keeping just trying to function and make sure that hey i get to do what i need to call the police make sure someone can come and so i find my phone i bent over with the broken back which is horrendous because now i'm introducing more swelling pinching my spinal cord and permanently paralyzing me even more so i don't know any of this i don't even know what what happened in my body at that moment so i call the police and this is the this is the part where i got really upset the police is trying to do a drug test on me and i'm telling him like i'm paralyzed now i can tell i'm paralyzed uh, like it's starting to hurt like i'm not on drugs i'm having a conversation with you right now i'm not why are you trying to drug test me like you're not going to have me get out of the car i can't move like you can't move me like this is not what you should be doing right now and so i'm i'm getting even upset in that moment with that too everything's going bad so i'm, I'm just like closing my eyes just saying a quick prayer i'm like god i don't know if i'm going to live or die but like i'm just going to trust that you know you, you're going to pull me through this and then obviously um firefighters came cut open the door drag me out safely. I'm in the ER room at, um, uh, what's the hospital called in Lawrenceville? They just changed it to Northside, uh, Gwinnett Medical Center. Gwinnett Medical. Yeah. And then I'm laying there, all these doctors, one by one, doctors are like poking at me, asking me questions. Hey, can you feel this? Can you feel that? Uh, one doctor comes in, asks that question. Another doctor comes in, asks that question. I got three doctors coming in. I got like four doctors coming in. I'm like, how fucking bad is this? And they're like, you've sustained a spinal cord injury. Well, we're going to do some x-rays, but, um, just, just know that's why you can't feel your legs. You can't move. Uh, you should probably call your parents. And so I call. It feels like an eternity. They're getting me drugged up, undelotted. So I'm like zoning in and out. Uh, some pretty heavy stuff. And, you know, my mom's coming in. She's got dewy eyes. And it breaks my heart seeing my parents cry. Uh, I don't see that often. So like, and I just felt so bad. I'm like, this is my fault. Like, 
I should have just stick with my guns and just whether just taking a quick nap or just gone to my friend's house. I could, I can hear that chanzori or just like uh, I can hear it all tomorrow morning from my dad, and I'm just having so much regret in that moment. And then at the flip side, my my dad's like I shouldn't have told him to come mm-hmm. home. There's so much going on, but it's unspoken, right? Like it, it's just intense in that, those moments. I go into surgery, and um, it it goes on longer than expected. So everyone's freaking out even longer. One hour passes, two hour passes. So like Sean's still not out, and so I have very little memory of being in, uh, in ICU because I was so drugged up. I'm in and out, um, and yeah, and that's kind of how that injury happened there. <sighs> <laughs> so you were 18, 19? I was 18 then. 18 years old. Yeah. Whole life ahead of you. Exactly. So excited to be with your friends. Just coming home. And it's interesting because the first thought was that um, to almost blame yourself, which is such a weird place to be. I, I At first, I, I didn't know how to kind of comprehend the feelings because there were so many emotions going on. Uh, and and there was like, number one, am I going to die? Number two, am I going to walk? Number three, and then and then all the other thoughts came after. But I really did blame myself. I, I, I just, I feel like I, a lot of mistakes that happened in my life, I, I think I put myself, I am the hardest on myself first to really analyze what did I do wrong? Yeah, and, and that's kind of how I took that position initially. So after the accident and you come out of surgery, when did you know that, you wouldn't walk again. So was that immediately or did they <laughs> think that you would? So, um, so they, so that the, they aren't liable and they don't get sued out the ass. They're going to tell you hundred percent of the time. Hey, you're probably not going to walk again. They have to. Yeah. Cause if they give you any hope, well, the doctor said this and so, so and so spinal cord injuries are very tricky in that you don't, it's a lottery chance of who recovers and who doesn't. Yeah. So they'll, t- they'll like, if they'll tell you this, um, if you recover, you'll walk in the first two years. If if you don't, you're kind of stuck in there for life until uh, medical advances happen. So that's kind of what they told me. Uh, but um, again, having um, a very optimistic look on it, I just, I was like, all right, let me see what I can do. Um, and then actually being transferred over to Shepherd Center, which is the rehab center that I was at, it actually almost demotivated me even further because like I was, I was like with all these other people who had spinal cord injuries, mm. And some of them were like, oh, I can feel my toes. And then they start walking. And I'm like, I don't feel shit. Fuck. Oh, fuck. Yeah. And I'm like panicking. And and like some people are, are, I've seen so much more improvement. And then they're just doing day-to-day stuff like, let's put your sock on today. I'm like, fuck, how fucked am I? Mm. And that that was so much the process in the, in those moments. So what was that rehab process like? How long were you in rehab? I was in Shepherd for four years. And I was- Four years. Or sorry, four months. Four months. Yeah, four, four months. months. Um. I don't know why I said years, but four months. And then I did about a couple more months following after that. I did um, outpatient PT. So I would have to drive and do physical therapy then. But bulk of my time in that four months, um, it was something occupational therapy just to normalize my life in the wheelchair. And that's a weird thing to do, in my opinion, because it almost felt like I was throwing in the towel already. Mm. But they do that just because they don't know when you're going to walk again or if you'll ever walk again. So they have to make sure you're prepared uh, in, in, for worst case scenario and so a lot of it was like um just how to put on my clothes because at, at the time my back was still broken i had a full brace on my chest and um I, there was a lot of things i couldn't do like i couldn't bathe myself i had nurses helping me but with time once healing the brace was off i could be a little bit more flexible get a little bit more comfortable in my body 
things of that nature. Uh, and then they were just teaching me, hey, you got to stretch. Um, this is the workouts that we recommend. We're going to show you how to do it. And it was really preparing me to be as independent as possible. Um, that that was what PTOT was, essentially. So you were staying at the at Shepherd for four months mm-hmm. and you're sleeping there mm-hmm. and your family's visiting you occasionally. Occasionally. What is that like being there? Oh, man. Um, the first night was horrendous because my bodily functions had or were at a disconnect. So uh, I couldn't even poop or pass gas. Uh, like my body was just not uh, working correctly. So I was in extreme pain with a lot of gas buildup inside. I hadn't gone to the restroom in four days. Yeah, I was screaming and crying in pain. And no matter how much gas sex or other dr- drugs they were giving me, it was just not passing through. So it, it was just ter- it was an extremely painful experience to be in there, uh, not because of them, but just because of this injury that had happened. And then initially, all these people were coming to visit me, friends that I haven't seen or, or friends that were close. And you get to see true colors of who, mm-hmm. pe- who are in your circle. Because as the weeks went by, less and less people came to really see you, talk to you, continue to motivate you, and just be real with you. My family came every every week, um, bringing pantan uh, and, you know, seeing like, and just trying to cheer me up. But friends, I went from like seeing like 100, 100 150 people to maybe like two people max mm. consistently. And I was like, wow, like this is what my relationships are. And that, that, <laughs> that put me in a whole like crisis. Uh, I was like, man, do I guess... All of the relationships that I thought I had built and continued with these people really don't mean much that because uh, I'm at the lowest of my lows now. Uh, and being alone, um, watching people on Instagram, social media, and they're continuing their lives and doing all these stuff that I, I was planned, booked for, and was wanting to do, it's now gone. And I don't know when I can do it, partake in it again. So it was, a, I would say the odds were stacked against me for my mental. And the whole time it was like, I have to keep my mental strong here because they, they were offering antidepressants like left and right. Like it was candy because I understand some people they're, they're paralyzed from the neck, neck down. They can't move a single finger. They can, they're breathing out of a tube through their neck and I can see why you'd be so depressed. But I was like, I cannot be like that. I, I I'm alive. I need to be thankful for being alive. I got to make the best that I can. Um, and we'll see, we'll see what's going to happen after rehab. So that was the mental that I had going in there. When you're in rehab, what do you think the the darkest moment was for you? Oh, everything that you thought was normal. Like everyone likes to dream out the road roadmap of their life. Hey, at this stage, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna graduate college. I'm gonna get um, meet a wonderful girl or a guy. I'm gonna get married. I'm gonna get this job. Like all those hopes, I couldn't even have those. Any they were all just thrown out the window because I didn't know what a normal life would look like being in the wheelchair. Right? I was like, hey, how does dating work? Like. You know, people are going to perceive me in a odd way now because they're going to see that I'm disabled. And, you know, dating was actually pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, uh, I'm thankful that I grew a thick skin, but I experienced um, like one girl, her parents straight up told me, hey, you seem like a wonderful guy. Parents are well off. You're going to college. You seem highly motivated, uh, but you're disabled. I don't want you dating my daughter. And like that, that's just hard words. It's like, yeah. damn, I'm not a terrible person. Like I just I got dealt a crazy hand and now I, I'm just making the best that I can. And that's what you're going to say to me. So those are the darkest moments because you, what you thought, it's now the unknown. We're, everyone's scared of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Now that's all thrown at you at once. So that's that's the darkest moments. So you, you talked a little bit about um, your new normal. And I think that's a funny word these days because over two, three years of COVID, they <laughs> use that term so much. Yep. And it seems so stupid to think that 
dealing with COVID and how to adjust is a new normal when we have someone like you who really dealt with a new normal. Mm-hmm. And it just puts that phrase into perspective. Yeah, um, that new normal for me. And it's funny because <laughs> I saw a lot of people frustrated with, oh, this is a new normal. I was like, I've already went through this. So I wasn't freaking out. I was like, all right, we just have to adapt. The new normal is just learning how to adapt. Um, I was listening to your podcast with Peter this morning on my way here. It's just manning up and owning up to things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really, I was like, I really cannot bitch and complain here. I like, I can be that guy that sits in, in my bedroom and do nothing, or I can just go out and get it. Fuck whoever, whoever looks at me. Or I used to care a lot what people like they would stare, oh, it's a Korean guy in a wheelchair. Because to be honest, I don't see many other Korean guys in a wheelchair or Korean people in a wheelchair. It's very stigmatized even when I went to Korea too. So I was like, you know, fuck all that. I just got to do me and I got to keep chasing and and, um, and just make sure that I'm taking care of myself. How do you block out all that noise? Because again, you can feel it. And I'm sure you feel sometimes like, oh, bro, I feel like they're looking at me. Mm. And you kind of feel that, you can feel the eyes around oh, you. Oh my goodness! Right, it's it's a lot of pressure. How do you deal with that? So at first, I would I would just be confrontational. I would just look back at them, and then they would just shy away. That's Korean culture. Like if they get caught, they kind of they're like, oh okay. Um, you can be rude about it. You can be like, why are you staring? Um, and I kind of approach that, but that didn't. That was creating a lot of bitterness and hate inside of me. I was like, I cannot handle this because I was taking that to my relationships and my people because that's what I was festering inside of me. So I was like, you know what? Why don't I just ignore it? <laughs> I've been hearing it since kindergarten. Just ignore it. I was like, I really don't need to give my time and day to these people I don't know about. If they want, if they have questions, man up or just come up and ask me. I'm I'm an open book. I, I'm a very personal person, very easy to talk to. It's just that um, I realized that, man, nothing really matters out here other than what I'm doing and the people that I care about. So if they're staring, let them stare. Yeah, it's their loss if they're not. If they want to ask a question, come. Take the opportunity to come meet me, chat me up. I'm more than happy to. But if that that's kind of how I approached it after going through different stages of how to deal with it. So I'm sure at a certain point through the rehab process, you know, you're kind of deep, dark, concerned, anxiety, um, so much unknown about what's going to happen next. How long did it take you to almost get out of that for a lack of words, out of that funk? I would say to like in Korean, like 정신 차려, like to clear, really clear my mind, it took me two months. Mm. Yeah. Quick. Uh, very quick. I realized, because I was watching everybody else around me and I was like, man, I this is not what I want. This is not what I want. I, again, 18, they told me my life. I, I met a Korean lady. I call her Mina um, Harmony. Uh, and she's gonna hate me for that if she ever hears this. But <laughs> uh, but she was a Korean American woman who got injured, uh, lost her husband, um, and she was like at the time she was like fifty five, and I was like oh like there's someone there's a representation like me a Korean American. So I had to ask a lot of questions, and you know she's like Sean, if you do the best out of it, you're gonna make the best life that you can, and that that's what I wanted to hear. Um, and so. Her, like life expectancy actually didn't change. They're like, you might lose one year off your life. You might lose one year off your life, but that's that's about it. As long as you're, you know, staying fit, active and things like that. I was like, okay, bet. So technically, I, I'm not too much different from everybody else out here as long as I put in the work. Um, so that's really what kind of clicked in my head. I was like, all right, this is just like uh, tutorial here. I'm, I'm in tutorial mode. Once I'm out, now it's time to make the moves. Uh, but there was a lot of questions that I asked, like, what did I, cause I was actually going to drop out of UGA and go cook, uh, stage at restaurants. Cause that was my dream goal, uh, to be a chef. That's what you always wanted. To always do. wanted to do. I love, I love serving people. I love cooking people being, um, 
Korean American, um, like we joke about making kimchi with your families on the weekend, which is a lot rarer nowadays. But that's the lost art. Lost art. Um, uh, like my kungomo, our great aunt, she um she does her own denjang, her own gochujang. She keeps it OG, and it just tastes so much better. And I was, and you know, there's a whole YouTube channel, and you, people are making money off of doing that of the lost art, and that's kind of um what kind of grew growing up uh and being in la at the time when i grew up a lot of exposure to good food and so i brought that here growing up in buford georgia not many options i still had to drive all the way like duluth has grown tremendously it's crazy how much has changed over the last 10 years yeah 15 years years. exactly Yeah, so at the time, if I wanted Korean food, I, again, I'm little. There, uh, it's Georgia's not a very walkable place. You have to drive everywhere. Um, so I had to make the best of it. And at the time, YouTube was just starting. So I would have to call my aunt and say, like, hey, can you give me the recipe for your omurice? Or can you give me the recipe of how you're, like, what am I doing wrong with my kimchi? And so, like, practicing those things at home. Um, but... Yeah, going back to it, I was like, okay, I know I want to cook. My doctor, my dad was like, you got to be a doctor. It's just typical Asian stuff. Yeah, and I did well in school. I had a full ride at Georgia. I was on a pre-med track with business administration. But I was like, man, I don't think I'm going to be happy doing this. Uh, and I sat down with my dad. My dad's been an entrepreneur his whole life. He was like, you know what? I think so. Like, uh, It makes more sense if you even just try business. But when I told him I was going to cook, he's like, hell no. Like, mm-hmm. what are you? That's so hard business low margins like you're gonna be a slave to it until and it's so high risk high reward so going back kind of to um your accident and your spinal cord i just want to touch on this before we kind of move on Mm -hmm. i've been looking into and something that people talk about a lot these days is elon musk's Neuralink, (laughs) and there's the idea that one of the main things he wants to do is to be able to give people with spinal injuries the ability to move their limbs again. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've ever looked into? How well-versed are you in it? Yeah. So there's a whole... So I got sent to Korea for three months for my dad. Because, you know, as a father, he sees his son. He wants to, And he has the resources. He wants to do the best. He wants to say, hey, if I can make my son walk again, I'm going to take every choice. So I was his kind of a guinea pig. We have a little rough relationship in terms of that aspect. But I, I understand his heart. Um, so I got to experience the dark side of spinal cord injury or, like, treatments. And so there are a lot of places where they're like, oh, stem cell this. And there was a huge stem cell, cur- like, craze just a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And so they would sell you this hope like, oh, stem cells going to create your new neurons and things like that. Absolute bullshit. They were just taking tens of thousands of dollars, mm. giving you, oh, take the, and you know, they mix um, Eastern Western medicine in Korea. So you're doing hanyak, doing acupuncture and all that. And then if you don't get any better, they're like, it's your fault. That's kind of how they put, push it on you. And so in Europe, they do a lot of electrical stimulation where they put an electrical pad and it jumps the signal over the broken portion of where your spinal cord got injured and sends it in. They've seen like success, but I still don't know why they're not pushing it. Obviously, they don't have enough long-term effects or studies. So the, the pool for it is very small. I think they take like five applicants out of like tens of thousands. Mm. So it's even rare to get into and they don't know the long-term effects. So you you sign a lot of waivers of like, hey, like we're not responsible for anything. You're really going to some... It's a huge gamble. Yeah, human trials. I was like, is my life really worth... like? Is walking that much important that I'd risk long-term effects? Or could I just wait until something's a little bit more safer and more proven and live a normal and build my life up to there? Those are things that I weighed about tremendously. 
uh, with Elon Musk, I think is a great concept, uh, but you know, he's a flag for killing so many animals. Mm. Think about that. How are you going to push into human trials? If you, if you put one and someone dies, that, that, yeah. that, that's crazy. We got a while to go before we got a long while, but you know, you talked about, um, technology advancing in your lifetime. Like it used to, in the first podcast with Haas, it was like, you know, it took, you know, a person's lifetime to see technological advancement, but now we're it's getting shorter and shorter. So we're seeing that with spinal cord improvement and um, new researches and studies and technological advances. So maybe in my lifetime, it might be possible. I, I don't know, but is it, that something that excites you of the possibility? If if they said, "Hey, we have one and we've tested it," um, and the chance is not a hundred percent, but maybe seventy five percent chance. <sighs> Like, what's that number or oh. where do you decide, okay, fuck it, I'm going to try it? And yeah. how important is that to you? For me, I mean, walking would be great. Um, or For me, my goals is like sta- more than walking, standing. Like, I, really, I can travel anywhere with my wheelchair, to be honest. It's just that sometimes, like, I can't even stand up to see over the, the let's say they have a partition or something. Like, that. that's what bothers me. Um, walking so much, even with walking, if you got to think about it. You've, your muscles have been atrophied for so long. There's a lot of therapy involved to go into that, so it's a huge tight commitment. You got to take away from your job. You got to take. You got to make sure your finances are all sorted. Like even if these things exist, not your average Joe is going to be able to continue with it because you're going to need the resources to make sure all your bills are covered, uh, make sure you're staying in shape, uh, and that you can step away from everything to focus on therapy. So like. There's so many conditions around it, right? Mm. Um, so if those are all satisfied, then fuck it, why not? As long as I like death is not a <laughs> not a side effect uh-huh. from it, right? And they're like, if it if it fails, you know, then it just fails. Then yeah, I think maybe like eighty percent and up is it's a pretty good shot. Like, why mm. not? Like worth the gamble. Yeah. Oh I I can't believe that like such a young age. And I can't believe like you're such a positive person. <laughs> and it amazes me. And sometimes I think, you know, like if I think that I'm having a hard time or something's not going my way, and then I think of someone like you, I'm like, oh, like I feel like such a bitch. <laughs> you, you know, like it can be just so much worse out there. And what am I doing complaining? Because it can be so much more difficult and you've overcome um, such more difficult situations that I've ever even experienced. So I don't know. I'm... You motivate me. Thank you. Um, one of the questions I had was that whether or not you live alone. But earlier you mentioned that you recently got married. Yeah, I did. And so um, we actually met on Bumble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our first date was very interesting. She was, um, I just, I didn't know she had tattoos. She was in a very like stronger outfit. I thought she was more of like those quiet church gr- Korean girls. And so our whole date was very interesting, but we had so much commonality. And then we really hit it off the bat. The next day, I actually made kimchi jjigae and toshirak and saw her at, at Emory at the time. And then we kind of clicked from there. And then we just kept dating and dating, but things progressed really fast. Like we knocked out really important questions. Like what are family values? What are your morals? What do you want in life? Like how is it important to stay with your family? How flexible are you? I don't know why we jumped into those conversations so quickly just felt connected it just felt really connected and the conversations like when we were hanging out at her place uh i would wait outside with my car and we just chat for hours on end like four hours with just like that uh and yeah we just ended up dating and things just got a little bit more serious with our parents um like 
going golfing together. We play golf stuff together on family. <laughs> like <laughs> golf stuff for people who are listening don't know. It's like a Korean card game. Um, and so it just everything just really meshed together. And so we, yeah, we made the, we were already living together. She moved in because we, we started dating 2018 and then the pandemic hit two years after. And instead of commuting, she, I was like, yo, like you're already coming to see me from Emory. I'm not too far. Just, I, I've got a spare room if you like. Or, yeah, we could share the same bedroom. And so that's kind of what happened. And slowly everything progressed really fast, but everything progressed smoothly. Like, um, sure, there's, I mean, is it perfect? I mean, no, real. I don't feel like no relationship is perfect. Never. Yeah. You. Uh, what I've learned is it's about, hey, is this person worth going through all the troubles? Like, uh, that's all. That's the question that matters uh, for us. So if we have a conversation or, or even a confrontation or argument, it's, Hey, I tell myself this person is worth it to go through and discuss everything, hash it out through, and we'll resolve it or compromise it. And that that's the, that's kind of how we proceeded with everything. That's how we fixed all of our arguments ever. So you met, you met her on Bumble, yeah. And when you had your profile on Bumble, did you say that you're in a wheelchair? So I wasn't sneaky. Uh, I had or my, were you like surprised? No, first day. <laughs> like, I, hey. I, oh. A lot of people think that I do that, and yeah. I understand. A lot of guys do that because they're mm-hmm. um, they're very they don't they lack the self confidence yeah. uh, to be like. Uh, but I feel like it was dishonest to people that you would meet. So I was like, and you know, if they're not gonna accept that from the get go, they're probably not gonna accept it. Like at, when they, especially as a surprise, you know, yeah. it's a big surprise. So <laughs> all of my shots, my friend did for me. Um, he he's like a professional photographer, so he did headshots, full top and body, and so those are the pictures I posted. So people knew what they were getting into. They saw me in the full wheelchair and everything, and so there was no surprise. Uh, but you know, she was for her. She told me that Sean, you're a Korean American guy who's posting yourself, not ashamed, in the wheelchair. What's your story? She mm-hmm. was intrigued by that. Yeah, so that's kind of how I got to get into the door. So she was attracted to the bravery exactly yeah the confidence in that Uh Uh, but i i don't think i was very a confident i wasn't a very confident person to begin with before my injury i was very shy uh i would say i was even more fit and more i I guess uh attractive before my injury um but i didn't have any confidence to spark up a conversation with a girl or anything i was too scared but after i got injured i was like what do i have to lose um it wasn't more like a shoot my shot like but it was this mentality of like, you really do miss 100% of shots that you don't take. You might as well, if you want to take the shot, you might as well take it. So I was like, okay, I'm confident who I am in my skin. Um, I know what I'm worth. Um, and I'm just going to put my else out there. And for the people that I track, that's why I track. If I don't, okay, that they weren't in my life to begin with. So I just, that's kind of the attitude that I held. So in this growth of confidence, do you think the inflection point was after the accident or uh when you met your girlfriend slash wife, what do you mm. think kind of triggered that increase in confidence? I Did think you feel like you had it and that's why you met her or you met her and then that just added to it? No, I think I definitely think I had it. And that, yeah, I think it happened during my injury. Uh, because with that me- like mental of like, I don't want to be like everyone else, like being, you know, moping around, boohooing and crying, what was me? Like, that's not what I wanted. And in that, naturally, the confidence is like, hey, if I want to be the best version, I got to be independent. Like, sure, I'm in the wheelchair, but I'm still going to school. I'm working at pop-ups wherever I can. Um, you know, I'm chasing my hobbies. I'm still traveling. Like, I normalize as much as I can to show, like, because, uh, I, you know, not to say that I have to prove to any anybody anything, uh, but I, that's what I wanted. I wanted to prove that, hey, fuck the wheelchair. I'm still a person that, that can do all these things. 
And by building myself up, I was, I had the confidence to be out there. Like, yeah, I'm valued just as much as the next Joe on the block. Yeah. And, and with that, that's how I was able to put, that's how I chose the pictures of me in the wheelchair rather than just showing my face and putting it on there. That's brave. I feel like there's a lot of people maybe in a similar situation that have been hesitant to do that, that may listen to this and be like, man, maybe I can go out there and meet someone too. I, I, I really think so. I, the, what's your biggest enemy is yourself, really. Yeah. Being stuck in your head, that, that's what stops you. If you go and, you know, as an, even in the aspect of entrepreneurship as well, too, if you just kept sitting around thinking about maybe should I do it, should I not, you're not going to get anything accomplished. As soon as you decided to make a decision or effort to do it, then things start rolling. So you've always wanted to be in the restaurant business, you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And starting in a restaurant requires restaurant experience. <laughs> and after your accident, I'm sure there must have been a time where you're like, I want to work at a restaurant, get some experience. Because if you're thinking I want a restaurant, if you're in college and you're thinking I want to start a restaurant, naturally you would gravitate towards I should get a job at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. But then you find yourself in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Did anyone hire you? No. It, Nobody. No. Short answer, nobody hired me. Why? Because think about it. You're, you are a big liability in the kitchen with your wheelchair. Um, and then two, you can't really do the tasks that people who are full able-bodied can do. And I understand that from a business perspective. I understand that completely. That's why I wanted to, be, to go in and be like, can I stodge? Can I internship for free? That way, like, you don't, I don't, I don't cost you anything other than your time or if at all your time because you'll, you'll have managers or other ch- chefs who could train me. And I just wanted to get as much experience as I can. So I, was, I just kept throwing myself out there. Hey, I work for free. Hey, like, I'll, if you need me to do herb garnishing or whatever, I just need exposure. And systems of operations is what builds a good business at the end of the day. It's not uh, sure food matters, but the operations, if you have that down, Man, that, that's a profitable and successful business. So I actually was going in the intent of, let me see how your kitchen runs and operates. That's what I want to get here. Cooking and doing recipes and stuff, I can learn that on my own. But how you run your system, there's got to be something that you have that I don't, that I can learn from. And that's that was the intent of going to all these restaurants. The balance China. between front of house and back of house and how that kind of works and how that almost dances. Exactly. That that's Because I knew that at the end of the day, a business is a you do a business to make money, right? And I need a business that's well-oiled and operates well. Um, so I, ha- if I have nothing, I have to absorb as much as I can. So I needed as much exposure that I could. So did anyone give you that internship? So only, so one person, uh, Staple House, uh, shout out to Miss um, Kittinger, or well, Miss Hittinger, she's now married again. Um, but at Staple House, they let me in for one day. Um, and even that one day was priceless because I really got to see uh, operations how uh, for because they were doing um, really a farm to table concept. Uh, new purveyors coming in every morning, things of that nature. They've since changed that tasting menu that they do, and they're more of a market now. But I've just even allowing me to be there uh, was like wow, thank you. that means a lot to me. Um, and it's crazy because I won an award. I hadn't seen her for like four four, six years, I won an award and she was sitting at the same table as mm. me. So that was wild too. Um, but everybody else, they're like, hey, they're, they kind of entertained the idea, but they just kept saying like, hey, I don't think it's going to work out. So I had a young um, who worked at Staple House and he was doing pop-ups and he said, Sean, yeah, let's get you some experience of what we're doing. 
And so that got me into like seeing how pop-ups work in Atlanta. And pop-ups back then were very new. Um, uh, that scene was growing and then it's even, it's exploded now. Um, and so that's kind of how I got a lot of my experience. Uh, but I knew that I was lacking for a good bit. So I, as much, I just kept asking and networking, hey, can I see how your, op- your kitchen operates and things like that? So if I couldn't get a job, can I just spend a day just seeing how your operations work? And just and because I was a college student at the time, I was like, yeah, it's a college project or like, hey, I'm doing I'm actually doing a franchising project. Can I come in and, and get your analytics and things like that there? They wouldn't hesitate to say no, because especially if it was like for a school project. How many people do you think you approached and asked or how many people did you apply to roughly over 100? Really? Yeah. All said no. All, pretty much everyone said no. Which is crazy because we live in a time where we do our best and go out of our way to promote diversity and promote acceptance and promote all these ideas that we should be able to um, help in these types of situations. And yet, when you actually apply it to real life and you put yourself out there, it's just closed doors. Uh, yeah, left and right. And But it's... At that point, it's a numbers game. You just keep grinding. Like it's either you get so demotivated and you give up, or you finally reach the point where you got your foot in. So, how good is your mental strength to keep going on? That's what it was. I mean, if you did like about a hundred, at maybe ten or fifteen, you must have been like, oh, "This is not working." Or you're like, "It's a numbers. I gotta keep on going." Like, wh- where's that balance between oh. like this is, you know, this bullshit versus? <laughs> You know? <laughs> oh yeah definitely no i uh, that's the thought that i had all the time like man this is bullshit what how the hell is it this hard um but at the same time I you're, was, you're offering to work for free yeah exactly um but they that's pre-covid right where workers were bountiful they you know they really didn't give a time and day like uh and weren't really struggling things were going pretty normal um so but for me, I, number one, knew that I wanted to open a restaurant for sure. So this is something I had to do no matter what. There was no option for no or failure. Um, so I had to do it. And number two, I actually did have a franchising project. So I needed analytics. So I was like, okay, someone's got to say yes. Mm. Yeah. So that's those are the two main factors that kept pushing me to ask. So we fast forward to 2020 and you decide to open up Mukja, which mm. is your restaurant, in the middle of the pandemic. And I'm assuming at that time, Government is running extremely slowly. Inspections can't be easy. Um, Getting people to even approve different things, permitting. What the hell were you thinking? So we had signed the lease before COVID happened in early January. It's funny because my... Of 2020. Of 2020. So right before. Literally right before we had signed, you know, we had spent the whole year before that looking for a great lease to put our concept in. And we were getting shafted left and right, and our agents were not helping. So we found finally went out and just reached out to brokers and agents ourselves. And um, and once we found a location that we loved and thought it made sense, um, we were like, okay, let's let's sign this. We had our lawyer look over, it, and there's a few things that I've learned now that I would do differently. But um, my I remember the wife said hey so she grew up in beijing so she speaks a good bit of chinese mandarin as well too and so she saw a news article about a new virus strain going in china in december mm. and was telling me about it i was like i wasn't thinking about it. i was like oh that's uh it sucks to suck china <laughs> 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 and then um then covid breaks literally two three weeks like into the u.s for the first time and i'm like holy shit how is this gonna <laughs> affect us and man it was uh i was not prepared for the shitstorm that was to come for that. Hmm. Um, 
like you said, permitting was not coming out. The city of Atlanta basically shut down and said, I don't know when we're, they said, we don't know when we're coming back. Um, so everything's to a halt. Our landlord, um, you know, they gave us a grace period, but then, you know, we, I think city of Atlanta just started taking permits and approving permits in August of that year. So we are now eight months into 2020, no progress whatsoever. And I'm like, and they're asking for rent the next month, which I understand. But at the same time, I consider it an act of God. Like, you know, we were delayed for eight months. So can't you just push us for eight months? It's not you guys are, you guys, it's a billion dollar company. They're not really strapped on that, the little chump change of rent that we're giving. But for us, that's huge amount of capital that we're going to bleed in because we don't know what the time, like permitting and, and building is already slow. Mm-hmm. And, and with the pandemic delaying everything, on an eight-month delay, I was like, this is a shitstorm waiting to, ha- like, destroy us. We're going to be drained of all of our capital before we can even, we can even open the doors. So we got plugged in with a lot of people, good and bad. But we pretty much got everything expedited from August to October. Oh, wow. That, I would say that that was like a gift of God. I, I don't know how that happened. Uh, we had to do a lot of networking, a lot of string pulling, a lot of favors here and there. Um, but uh, we got to open our doors, but it got, it was so crazy. One of the craziest things that we experienced, even in the department of, um, approving our floor plans, cause we went into a second generation restaurant. So it was just cosmetic stuff that we really changed and we had to retrofit everything else. There were some new rules and regulations that they changed during COVID that wasn't explained to everyone in the department. So half of the, half of it, half of the people were still on the old regulations. The other half was on some new regulations. I got a pre-approved for the old regulations and do, then they swapped out my, uh, um, the person who was overseeing our, um, our floor plan. And then he's like, Oh, we've, we've made changes to our, our, our new rules and regulations. I was like, how the fuck are you going to switch that up? Uh, when it was already pre-approved and we had to go back and forth, it was going to introduce new construction costs and things like that. So it was an absolute nightmare. We had to get the city commissioner approved because our occupational uh, or our operator, what am I thinking? Um, what, what am I th- Occupancy. Of. Occupancy. Certification of occupancy was not coming out because the, the departments were fighting in between themselves and not uh, issuing that. Because you can't have the same amount of people that you used to have. Exactly. Because of COVID. They changed it up. And, and, uh, um, and I was like, how the hell are you guys going to push that on me now? Uh, when I'm already pre, when I got approved for it, just because someone changed, you can't just throw that on me. So I had to get approved, and we had to just operate because I was like, "City, you guys are not going to pay my rent. I need to bring in revenue. I don't even know how I'm going to bring in revenue because dining's not even open. I'm a brand new restaurant with a brand new concept, let alone Korean fried chicken coming into Midtown, which Midtown had not seen at all. So there's a lot of gamble here, and we basically, if I could wait until things normalize, I would have wait. Why not? That, that's the smarter move. But again, this is the the cars that I was dealt with, I was losing capital. I had to make a decision to start moving. And that, and that's kind of the reason why we had to push to open. And you could have built your restaurant pretty much anywhere else, but you chose to go to Midtown, mm-hmm. which is not an easy place to start a new restaurant. Um, it's a very urban area. Also, mm-hmm. you rely on the businesses around you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different area. I mean, you could have easily done something out here in the suburbs yeah. and maybe had it a little bit easier for sure. of a start. Why did you choose to go into Midtown? Yeah, so Midtown for so the concept of Mokcha, right? Um, it's uh, it's Korean. It says Korean fried chicken, but I like to say the identity is Korean American. That's who I am. At the end of the day, we're, as Korean Americans, it's a weird spot. We're not fully Korean, but we're not fully accepted as Americans. At the I, same. I always say it's a it's a people without a home. Yeah. Not fully accepted where you came from. Not fully accepted where you are. It's a really odd, weird place to be. Exactly. But I want to represent that through the food and the concept itself. So mukja itself, um, 
we wanted people to know about Korean fried chicken. And this was the rise of like, like Parasite was winning awards. Uh, BTS was taking charts. Like it was just the wave. Um, and Korean barbecue had already taken a storm from the early 2010s in Georgia, at least. So it's like fried chicken just makes sense. I took a lot of inspiration from Roar Choi, which is Kogi Truck, fusing um, tacos and Korean flavors in LA. I was like, we're in the South. We're doing fried chicken. Who, who wouldn't love fried chicken in the South? It just makes sense. It's a different twist on fried chicken. And, you know, Korean fried chicken business in Korea is the number one franchise in Korea. That's, I think there's more businesses of Korean fried chicken than any other businesses mm. in Korea. It's so competitive out there and it's good for its own right. So I was like, it makes sense to, and nobody was doing it in Midtown at the time. I didn't want to open up another Kogiji because uh, so much over, it's even more overhead. Yeah. Steakhouses are expensive. Uh, you know, during COVID, at the time, uh, like I know all the complaints of my friends who worked at places. The work-life balance is not great too. I was like, let's let's try to do a different approach of trying to bring Korean flavors. That's the mission statement of our company. Um, and so we're like, let's do Korean fried chicken with a little bit of a twist. And so, with that in mind, we also wanted to make sure that this business—it's really grand—the idea. We wanted to make a national brand, being someone with very little to to know restaurant experience it sounds like a fool a naive fool uh, you you could be right from the, if you're looking at it from any other perspective you're like yeah that that makes sense you look at it like an idiot who's bound to fail but i was so confident that it, it could if i was a foodie and i mean i still am i go out to a lot of restaurants um not to just uh, just to experience what what the market is and that's that's a lot of the homework that i did and i was like man there really is not a good market for this and i know there's a demand with how big uh korean culture is exploding how big already the international um and student population is that wants this uh and as well like you said an urban who's pretty open half of it's open i've got a funny story for that and so midtown if we wanted any chance of great exposure where we have a lot of business conferences coming in. We have the most diverse group of people, uh, not just Korean people that's going to come and try our food. And if we execute it, I think we got something. Mm. So that, that was the main driving point of being in the Midtown. Um, but there was uh, the craziest thing that we were completely not expecting is that half of other Midtown uh, or the Atlanta population is very ignorant in that they walk in, they don't read the signs, they don't see that it's Korean fried chicken, or they just see an Asian guy and they're like, where's my fried rice? Oh, can I get a lemon pepper? Aren't you guys American Deli? Like most Korean mm. people own it. Like that, that was the ignorance that we had to really break through. And we're still doing it. We're three years in, we're still break. We have a name for ourselves, but we're still breaking that with a lot of people. That was the hardest part of kind of explaining our concept. Because 2020, 2021, even going to 2022, um, you know, we've all seen them push this stop Asian hate kind of narrative, right? And um, and I told my wife that I was going to bring you in. And mm -hmm. I told her, oh, he has this restaurant in Midtown called Mokja. And she's like, oh, I heard about them. I saw them in the Korean newspaper a couple of years oh, ago. Oh, right. And, uh, and they got robbed, is, is what she said. And, um, and she almost said it in a way that um, it felt like you were targeted. Do you feel, walk us through that day. And do you feel like what really happened? Yeah. So that day, um, I we got in the morning and, and, you know, my worker's like, hey, boss, it's shattered. I'm like, what do you mean? Our alarms didn't go off. Uh, the It just happened to be someone forgot the alarm. I thought I turned it on. And I specifically told it. And I'm more and I've learned a lot. It was a little bit too lax back then, but I've learned a lot to just double check everything. 
I can't trust anyone other than myself, my own eyes. But yeah, the alarm was off. Someone had gotten a rock, destroyed the front windows, ran in and stole all the POSs, thinking there was cash. We have a full sign that says we're cashless. So I'm like, you're <laughs> absolutely retarded. We have no, you have no business being in here. Yeah. We, all you did was fuck up a small business. And you know what's crazy? No one else got hit. Only us. So yeah, it did feel personal. It felt like, man, you're just sure we're on the side street, but there's cameras, there's lights all around. Cops didn't really do shit, to be honest with you. But I was like, man, this really took a hit. The POSs were four grand down on the POSs system. We had to pay for the glass. We couldn't. The the fix was just below our um, our um, deductible. Deductible. And so it didn't make any sense. They were like, if you go through this, your, your um, rates are going to go up too. I was like, what? This is the worst hand to deal with. And I was so bitter. Uh, but yeah, even in the weeks leading up to that, we kept getting phone calls. I was like, oh, is this the chink place? Y'all serve like, and I was like, what in the hell is going on? Like it, it and to be, this is what I say, like being Korean American, I thought people would be able to relate, but they just see our face and, and mm -hmm. think that they could do whatever. Um, but that's what happened. Uh, I checked the cameras, the guy, yeah, he ran in just one guy he, uh, um, that ran in. He, he scoured through everywhere looking for cash. I'm like, if you just took a moment to read. That's what I'm saying. Nobody even reads anything. We have a full sign that says, hey, we're cashless, a card only. You would have known. You All he stole was POSs, fucked up a small business, and took a bunch of our receipt paper. That's all he did. At, yeah. And that made us so upset because, it, I mean, we got to operating for the PN right away because I had, a, you know, great people who reached out to me. But still, that really pissed us off during those times. Do you still feel that today? I mean, you've been there three years now. Um, do you feel a shift in the environment shift around the people around you or do you feel like you still have to deal with that on a regular basis uh people being aggressive towards asian people um i think it's died down a lot uh and it's just gone back to being um just shitty customers <laughs> mm. midtown is a tough place you got a lot of you got such a diverse group of people who are coming all over the place because you got places that are gentrified or in places that are not so gentrified so you got a very diverse group of people and in the city of atlanta people are very particular in a you could serve the same thing. So, for example, we'll, we'll have food and they're like, oh, this isn't cooked right, even though it's right. We'll take it back and just as an experiment, we'll let, sit, bring it back out. It's the same food and they're like, wow, it's amazing. So, yeah, it, I think that's what we deal with. Just people being assholes for the most part. So your restaurant is Bokja, mm -hmm. which literally means let's eat in Korean. Mm -hmm. I think it's a super cute, awesome name. Thank you. Um, you have this Instagram that I think is amazing. <laughs> your mukja instagram is so much fun you give so much you give such a look inside how that restaurant runs um the successes the hardships mm -hmm. you really are open about what that process is like mm -hmm. you didn't start that way i started scrolling through the beginning and the beginning of it was a lot of marketing type stuff yep uh, professionally shot things and it didn't seem as popular then but you start opening up about yourself and your journey and the restaurant itself. And all of a sudden you see like this increase mm -hmm. in content. And I find the current content so much more enjoyable. Thank you. What, what was that process like? How did you, when did you decide I need to change? And what made you say, I'm just going to, fuck it. I'm just going to tell everyone everything. Mm. So originally we had this, I had an ex-business partner. He had a lot of experience in uh, ad marketing and advertising so he that's what he pushed for and it made sense to me like when i see all these other fancier restaurants with like 100k followers whether they're bought or not they, that's how their posts generally look more professional headshots or photo shoots and things of that nature but then you know looking at the analytics there's no engagement 
Mm -hmm. I was like, man, is this really worth it? And we just kept pushing. We just kept beating on a dead horse. And hopefully, hey, maybe we just need to get lucky. And then I just was not motivated to post anything on that once I had to take over the accounts. And I was like, what is going to make me happy or worth doing so? I actually don't. It's a lot of commitment to post, to edit and things like that. And I'm that's just not what I like to do. But I, I know that I need to do it because it's my business at the end of the day. It's a new age that we're going into. So for that, I was like, what is something I can talk about that would interest people? I don't need a million followers or anything like that, but people who would bring engagement. So I, I posted uh, one, po my very first post had so much engagement, so many comments rooting for me. I was like, wow, like th this is crazy. Like people really want to hear something like this. And so I, I was like, okay, let me keep following that. And the wife kept pushing, hey, you bring a new perspective and, and something fresh. Uh, so, and you know, there's a lot of complaints uh, and people don't understand because as a business owner and a customer, the perspective you'll never understand unless you're a business owner yourself. And I was like, maybe there's some dialogue that we can have there to really have them understand. Like this morning, I was late to my restaurant because I spent 45 minutes of my own time to respond back to someone being upset about our food increase prices. And I gave him all the analytics. I, I, it was like 1,500 words. Did I go over? <laughs> yeah, but like I'm very honest about like, hey, like I understand why I, I bitch and complain at restaurants that are so expensive now. But I understand at the same time, and let me show you why. Let me. I broke down his questions. I gave him all the, my analytics, and I said, this is just a small tip of the iceberg that you're not seeing. But I don't mean this in a, a disrespectful way. This is me coming to you arms wide open to let you know, like, hey, I'm open as a small business owner to let you know why we're doing things. Overhead in Midtown is expensive. Our food cost is, is expensive. It's gone up. I looked since the day we opened to now, our chicken cost got up 90%. Mm -hmm. Like things like that, you're, you're not going to know unless you're doing the day-to-day -day, um, ins and outs of running a business. And sometimes you uh, address reviews mm. on, on your Instagram as well, which I thought was very smart. And I looked you up on your Google reviews and your Yelp reviews, and you respond to almost every review yeah the i and there's a lot of reviews there's a lot hundreds and you respond to all of them <laughs> i do and i personally respond to everything our, our key statement on that if you look it's with love mukja how are you going to how are you going to beat on someone especially this is this is the this is what it is the angle is if someone else reads that and sees a business owner replying back every single one of them cordially respectfully and with logical thought and reason how are you going to bash on them right a lot of my, I, I bring back, you know, we're humans at the end of the day. There can be mistakes. Of course. That's fine. But, and so as customer service, we go out of our way. Hey, reach out to our email. Like if you look at our responses, they are very personalized. They're not cookie cutter. So, you know, you're not talking to a bot. I mean, with now chat GPT. Uh, sure. Well, well, let's not go <laughs> another there. Rabbit hole. Yeah, that's, a, that's another <laughs> rabbit hole. But, uh, but they're very personal. And I said, reach out. If you read it, reach out. I'll, I'll give you a meal on the house. I can be personable with you. And, you know, I want to make your experience great. But 95% of the time, people don't take up on that offer and they just leave it. They're just so bitter. They're just very bitter people who just want to talk shit. And, you know, that's fine. But while being as personal as I can be, I'm thinking about not just that customer, but other people who are looking at those reviews as well. Because before, if you hear about a new restaurant and I want to go, you kind of go, you skim the reviews these days. And you... Right now, it seems like you skim the Google reviews a little bit more than you skim the Yelp reviews. It seems like. Um, so do you see more traffic in one or the other? I actually. And what's your stance on Google versus Yelp? Yelp. Oh man, I actually fucking hate reviews. Mm. Uh, like they're they're horrendous. Um, because 
if you know anything about our business and you're, you actually come, sure, we only have one shot to bring repeat customers, but if you know anything about our business, we're very personable people. You can talk to any of the cashiers. You can reach out to me. You can send an email. I'll respond back. I'll even call you. I'll just sit down at my own restaurant, meal on the house, and talk to you. That's how I go for customer service. And so a lot of these people, they um, they just like to rant. Rant, rant, rant. They're not happy with, you know, they, they feel entitled and things like that. I used to give a lot of care. And I still do to some point, but I realize some people are just unreasonable. Mm. So I don't really entertain unreasonable people. But people who are, sure, they're upset. But once I throw that dialogue and they respond back, then I know that they're reasonable people because they're, they're wanting to be understanding. So on Yelp and Google, it's I, I really hate it because reviews are so subjective. And everyone's a food critic and expert these days. Exactly. You don't know how the restaurant runs. You don't know, like food, co- like even for that, uh, this morning about food costs, you've never dived deep. You, yeah. You, you just saw something, you were unhappy with it. I didn't force you to come eat at my restaurant, to be honest with you. You came. If you don't like the prices and you want to know, sure, that's fine. But don't come running at me saying I'm too overpriced. Like you don't, you don't know anything about it. So that's why those reviews, I think I am a little bit more responsive to the Google reviews because we have more foot traffic because of the analytics. We get over 200, a quarter million to 300,000 views or clicks on our Google maps. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then we do on Yelp, actually. So Yelp, I kind of, I think the people on Yelp, they're a little bit more foodies. So they can be the harsher critic, but we're very confident in the consistency and the food that we serve, as you, you've sampled earlier. So we kind of just let that run on its own. And I think the biggest unfair part of restaurant views is when people blame the restaurant for the delivery taking too long, blaming them for their DoorDash experience or their Uber Eats experience. They'll Mm -hmm. go on there and be like, one star, the food showed up cold, and it was DoorDash. And sometimes DoorDash takes two hours to get to you. That's not your fault. That's not my fault at all. But when I scroll through some restaurants that I really like, and I'll look and be like, how are you going to blame DoorDash for this? how are you going to blame them for DoorDash? Exactly. And how are you going to blame on food quality, especially fried chicken, for delivery? You're the one who's assuming responsibility at that point. There's, you know, some people argue like, oh, then why are you offering delivery? I mean, because we're a business. At the end of the day, we need to have those options, right? And so, yeah, like if you look at, I think our Grubhub, we have like a 3.5 rating. And every single rating, that one star, it's from delivery drivers just not showing up. That's nothing we can do. Yeah. We can do. So we just bite the bullet there. But I mean... That's why we push an emphasis on people come and dine in. That's why even for the tenders, we don't put it on the delivery platforms. You have to come in store because we want to push in store because it's a whole experience to come in, counter service, see the see the pictures of, you know, the food, see the murals that we have and just be a part. And even the music, the ambiance, like that's all a part of the experience about the food. And so that's why we go for the push of, hey, you guys really need to come and dine in with us because if you think the food is good, um, deliver Imagine how the food is when you come in store. So, yeah. But at the same time, we're kind of at the delivery services whim. Yeah. Because you can't not do it. You can't not do it. You're just that's stupid. It's so much revenue. And what a lot of restaurants do, they just increase and whatever percent share that they're taking, they'll just increase it because that's what you have to do. Like margins are people think that just because you own a restaurant, um, you're making millions of dollars. You're really not. Like (laughs) Chick Fil A, but Chick Fil A, like all these huge businesses, billion dollar businesses, they have economies of scale. They the branding is enormous. Like they've taken time and time to build up to that point. But for one store, your margins are pretty thin. So that's a good lead into what's next for Bokja. Is mm-hmm. this, because you had mentioned when we talked off camera, 
that your original idea was to make this in sort some sort of franchise. Yeah, it is. So where do you see it going? So that's what I talked with a franchising professor and some other people who just started franchising. I've seen people fail. I've seen people with success. Not easy. It's not easy because um, uh, what I'm seeing, a lot of people who have success, they're going to private equity. They're selling 49% of the company. It's a lot of control. It's not majority, but still 49% is a lot. Uh, and because they're so small, they don't get much uh, investment in um, to compare to what I want. And so it it's a question that I, I'm continuously analyzing i'm in a position where it you know we're not doing terrible we're, we're profitable now um and so that i can take some, some time to really analyze all the deals that i have available and what my next uh move is because i need to make sure my next move is going to be correct um, i have so much experience so i need to slow down and really look at the bigger picture here for expansion um i i personally don't want to open a second location um it's with hiring and things like that, um, it's it's a whole nother monster because it's actually just not double the work. It's almost triple and quadruple the work because there's so many more moving parts now as a single owner that's operating all of this, right? And so that's a big factor as to why I just want to go ahead with pitching the one store that I have. But again, you might not bring as many interested franchisees, right? So there's a lot of trade-offs and I just got to make a decision at the end of the day which one it sounds the best for me. But franchising is definitely the route that I want to go. Uh, would you consider other cities oh yeah maybe miami new york so you know what's crazy our best customers are people who come from different major cities and appreciate the brand better because they're their area like in atlanta people are just stuck to the same old food we're now thankful we're just pretty slow in the food scene mm-hmm. compared to other major cities like la san francisco new york and miami even texas too like there are a lot of bold flavors um atlanta's a lot more slower we're very slow to change on that so that aspect we get a lot of people atlanta is a major hub we got a lot of people coming passing through so a lot of our customers that love leave great reviews and champion us they're from out of state houston dallas miami new york and then they tell people over we're back in their hometown so when they come visit they come see us like i remember one guy he told his friends in new york hey there's a korean spot that i really enjoy and then all a bunch of korean people started coming i'm like where are you guys are you guys from duluth and they're like no we came from new york i was like that's crazy yeah. that, that it's spreading word of mouth from other cities so that's actually kind of what i want to do i think having the concept in major cities where it where that identity of korean american is it, a little bit more understood or the flavors are more um i guess appreciated i think it would make a killing mm-hmm. yeah i think um i would encourage you maybe to go to places where they're not there because if i think of new york new jersey there's so many places, so much competition yeah. and even if your food is better mm-hmm. it's still difficult to stand out sure. because there's so much competition but then you go to a place like miami which i love miami and there are maybe three or four Korean type restaurants in all of Miami. Mm-hmm. And it's ass, just complete ass. Mm-hmm. We went to this one, um, I forget what it was called, like Two Sisters Bowl or something. And they did like these pimpap bowls. And I walked in there and um, they focused, we went in there and it looked like a place that's focused more on like delivery mm-hmm. than actually like eating. But they had a little eating area, they had beer. And I was talking to the manager and he saw, like me and my wife, he saw two Korean people walk in and it was the first time he's seen Korean people walk into their Korean restaurant. Wow. Because there's no Koreans there. Yeah. And he gave us his food and he's like, hey, can you try this? Can you try this? Can you try this? Because he wanted some feedback of like actual Korean people. Is he Korean? No, no. He he was Hispanic. And uh, so he was a manager and he wanted feedback of like actual Korean people. Mm -hmm. And they 
they brought us some food. They brought us some like their panchan, and the bowl was okay. They brought some panchan. It was like some bu, like mm-hmm. radish, and it sat out too long. Cause you can uh, tell. Yeah, you can tell that stuff goes bad if you sit out too long. Yeah, but he had no idea because he had never had it before. That's crazy. That oh, we're in an age where you can just look everything on YouTube, but you need to experience things. That's oh wow. He had no idea that this was bad, and as soon as I ate it, I was like, bro. I don't want to be I don't want to be a dick about it, but this is not good. Yeah, like it's not that it's not good. It just been sitting out too long. Yeah. And it's obvious. He's like, "How do you know?" I'm like, "When you have it, when it's not been sitting out." And then when he asked me, "How do you know?" I was mm-hmm. like, "Fuck, this guy's been serving like this this whole time. time. No idea that it's probably sitting in like um you know one of those trays outside. Yep. And, but it it goes bad quickly. Quick. And um, I thought that was interesting because they're they were really busy. I saw you know pick up. Pick up, pick up, pick up, pick up. And the first time they saw Korean people, they're like, we need your feedback. I'm like, hey, bro, that's there's like, wild. you got a long way to go, you know? And, you know, he's like, hey, you know, can I have your number? Like, can I call you and ask you, do you live in here? Like, I don't live in Miami, <laughs> you know? But there's so few Korean people in such a huge, you know, metropolis type of market. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they didn't know any of this stuff, I thought that was really interesting. And there's one Korean barbecue place in Miami and it's like really high end. Mm-hmm. So it's not like real Korean barbecue. Yeah, I understand. You know, it's like one of these really trendy, mm-hmm. like super expensive Korean barbecue places. But it's not the Korean barbecue experience. experience. Where you can't, can't, it has to be a little bit grimy. So what is your what is your definition of Korean barbecue? Because it's changed so mm. much drastically. I like the really traditional Korean barbecue places. So when I go to Korean barbecue, Korean barbecue is number one, it's not cheap. Oh, no. But American restaurants and steakhouses are even more expensive. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, me and my wife will go out to dinner somewhere, and after we're done, and we, you know, for two of us, maybe we'll spend a hundred bucks or a hundred dollars, maybe even two hundred dollars on dinner, and we'll we'll get our bill and be like, oh, shit, just went to Korean barbecue. Yeah, I think it all, all the, the time. time, all the time, right? I because I know what I'm gonna get, and it's gonna be delicious, and um, I like the more traditional. I like the old school. So I like going to like the older Korean restaurants more than I like going to the newer places because I feel like the older places will focus on a higher quality meat sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to go to the Korean barbecue places that do like USDA prime yep. meat. And there's like two or three in Duluth mm-hmm. that always do that mm-hmm. versus some of the other quicker ones these days um, that don't. And it's not easy because beef is really expensive right now. It really is. And to find that balance, I get it. Like some people have to cut their cost. Um, but that experience just is something that's not in Miami. And I've been looking for it because we go there all the time. Mm. And the Korean community is slowly growing. But Korean barbecue and Korean food in general, like you said, is getting really popular. Extremely. People are looking for it. And that's one market that I think it's like wide open. I've always thought, like if I'm going to open a restaurant, that's where I'd open one. I would say the hardest part is sourcing Korean ingredients. Mm. Yeah, that's the hardest part of why certain areas and markets that are underserved are really underserved. Just get being able to get, sure, maybe you're able to bring it, but maybe the cost gets ridiculous because of transport, right? Uh, like, for example, with U.S. Foods, they told me if I have five or ten locations, then we can start bringing your gochugaru and gochujangs that you use with that company, and we'll import it ourselves. It's like, shit, I got a long way to go then. Hmm. Then, I just, then I have to go to the wholesale of, like, Namnumun or something. But those are the main reasons why I want to go in certain cities. But finding out the logistics to hmm. getting it done, that's the homework that I really need to do because I... Yeah, when you for Miami, we get a lot of people from Miami. They do a quick getaway to Atlanta. They swing by Mokcha religiously. Mm. And I was like, wow, you guys really love like Korean everything. And they're like, 
yeah, there's nothing here. There's nothing there. Yeah. And uh, there's obviously Miami, South Florida is a huge Hispanic population, Cuban population, mm-hmm. and they love Korean food. Love it. Because it's really similar to what they eat. <laughs> you know what's funny? You know, Sogongdong Sundubu, right? I've seen more Latino population than I see Korean people <laughs> eating there. And that's the funniest thing every time I go in. And it's growing. Yeah. So, okay. Anyway, getting back to the story here. So, do you ever feel like your disability, and what, I'm going to take a step back. How do you perceive that word disability? Um, do you man, like it? Do you hate it? I don't, Does it not bother it you? It doesn't bother me. I'm a very, go, I'm a, just as, as of an optimistic guy, I'm a very low, go-lucky guy. Like, if I let all these words irk me, man, I'm giving into it. I'm giving into the world. But if you had a preference... I mean, it is what it is. I'm disabled, right? I, if you stand next to me. I'm in a wheelchair. What, how different that guy, other than we're two Korean men, one guy's in a wheelchair, one guy's standing. Yet, obviously, disabled. I mean, sure, it is what it is. That's just kind of how I see it as. And I don't take any offense to it. You, you're a big car guy. That's how we met. Oh, yeah. And I always wondered what a lot of, especially the higher-end car guys, they go, they talk to a doctor, they get a little handicap plaque and they park their Lamborghini in the handicap spot. Mm-hmm. Does that rub you the wrong oh, way? Dude, that fucking makes me piss. Does that really piss it, you it off? It really pisses me off. Yeah. Cause I like, I, cause now I have to be the asshole. Cause you saw me getting out the truck, right? Mm-hmm. So I need space because I actually have to get my wheelchair out. Now I have, if you take the handicap spot, now I got a double park and park on the line. And now I look like the asshole cause I need space to get out of my car. Because and so that's what that's what really makes me upset, because it makes you the asshole at the makes end. Makes you the asshole. I, I, which now is, I, yeah, which is kind of funny if you think about it. Not because they took your space, but because you have to take someone else's space. Exactly. Because there's a lot of them. Oh, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blow anyone's spot up, <laughs> but you know, like there's a lot of you motherfuckers out there who drive extremely expensive cars mm-hmm. and just rock that handicap plaque, and they think it's so funny. It's a, yeah. Like a medal of honor for them. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think, and me being out here shows me like, ah, oh, shit, Sean's pulling up. Maybe, maybe we should leave it open. Things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I understand why people want the handicapped spot. But at the same time, like, man, if you're, if you're taking this car out, you're kind of assuming responsibility when you're putting it on the road and out in public spaces. So. All right. Quick scenario. I'm an unhappy, I'm an extremely unhappy customer mm-hmm. with either food or the experience. Mm-hmm. And I want to walk up to complain. And then I see you, the owner, sitting in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And I hesitate because I don't want to be that guy. Mm. How does that make you feel? I I understand the hesitancy, but I think that they should always be honest. Honesty goes a long way. If Because how am I, as a business owner, going to make my business better if you don't tell me my faults are wrong. You can't just give me the, oh, he's disabled, we'll let him slide. No, that's going to that's gonna put me a complacency for my business and me as a person. That doesn't help me improve or grow. I need you to be damn honest. If you didn't like something, again, being reasonable, if you didn't like something, let me, make, let me take care of you. Let me make sure things are right. Start up the dialogue and we can grow a relationship there from, a, from uh, the restaurant owner to a customer and making sure that you're taking care of every time they come in and you have the best experience. Because if you don't approach me and start the dialogue just because you feel pity, it's a little disrespectful in my opinion. Like just because I'm in a wheelchair doesn't mean I, I'm a person who can have a you know conversation with you. Yeah. Do you feel that sometimes where people try to almost <laughs> treat you with kid gloves? Do, do you feel that? Can you like 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 how hard 
Oh, or how oh my strong goodness. is that feeling? So one thing that I train my staff and one thing I do when I'm at the restaurant myself, I check up on it. I don't need to do this, but I just check up on tables. Once they get their food, give them about five, 10 minutes into their meal. Just check up on them. Hey, how was the meal? There's a lot of people, if they're upset, um, they'll, uh, like the people, uh, people who are honest, they'll tell me straight up. But other people, they're like, they don't, they're, they're not happy with something, but they, like you could see it on their face. They hesitate for, a se- like, hesitate for a second. And then they just say like, yeah, it's, it's fine. I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, you know, fine versus yeah dude this is amazing you can catch those small nuances i'm like no tell me tell me what's wrong they keep looking at my chair Mm. and i'm like hey i'm gonna be honest with you you can be as open as you want i'm here to make and this is how i preface it i don't attack them i said i'm here as an owner to make sure that your experience is great your food is great that you're taking care of every time because i respect and appreciate you taking the time to come to my restaurant you can go anywhere else, but you came here. So I want to make sure you're taken care of. And by shifting that narrative, people feel a little bit more open to talk. Do you ever feel like, or have you ever had an experience where it went the other way, that they almost use a disability against you? Or is that something that doesn't really happen? It doesn't really happen. I don't think people ever assume that. That I think you're always, uh, in our society, it's like you got to open the doors for disabled. You got to, you know, they're disabled. So they, they, you got to treat them a little bit better. That's kind of what people are growing up. So I've never really seen anyone be an asshole to me because I'm in a wheelchair. Only one time I was at Buford's Farmer's Market and a new line had opened up and I went to go take it. And a guy just yells at me. He's like, you disabled fuck. I was like, whoa, whoa. Like those are some fighting words right now. Like, you know what day and age we are? It Like I could be crazy. Like I, I could just, you know. With the amount of shooting, like you don't know what could happen. Those are some crazy words. That's the only experience that I've ever yeah. had. Do you, do you feel like, um, is it harder to be an Asian living in, I mean, working in the city or is it harder to be disabled or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. So um, I don't know how comfortable you are with uh, guns or open carry and things or just like even concealed carry too. Um, so I was always against guns. Uh, very religious background. Um, and my parents were like, no, it's not worth it. But I had a gun pulled out three times since the start of the pandemic. Really? Yeah. Uh, one uh, one of them was on the highway. Uh, some guy was road raging. Another one, they got mad over some waffles because they didn't understand that scallions go in a waffle. So we actually had to take off waffles because I thought this was the most ridiculous thing that I had a gun pulled out over. They couldn't understand. They were at like, the restaurant? At the, they were like... You sold, you served me spoiled waffles because they didn't understand scallions. It's green in a waffle. They didn't. They've never seen green or scallion. So it's like a take on, putinge, um, padon, and we made it into a waffle. Hey, it's fun, Korean American. That it's sounds a, pretty good. Actually, this is it was pretty damn good to be honest with you. But this guy just did not have it, and he was pissed. Yeah, he's like, I spent all this motherfucking money, and like. Pull that gun. He's like, you're gonna give me my money back now. I was like, this is wild. Like, I, I, I just had to process that for a second. Like, <laughs> is this really happening? That's that can't, over waffles. Over waffles. What over goddamn fuck? waffles. Yeah. Uh, and so I decided and not worth getting shot. It's over, not worth obviously. getting. Obviously, yeah. So I just took it off the menu. And some people complain about it. I was like, my life is not, yeah. Like again, it's not worth like. I mean, the operation sense and stuff like that. But I, uh, my security guard would, took me to the range. Show me safety, took safety classes, went shooting, was a great introduction, was very comfortable. I wasn't scared of it. I understand everything uh, in terms of being a very responsible gun owner. Uh, and I really enjoy shooting and going to the range now. Yeah. Uh, and so I just have it on me all the time. And it's kind of therapeutic. It, I, it gives me a, you know, some people are like, oh, what's the point? You're, you know, if you get, if someone pulls out a gun, you get shot. Like, what's the point? I mean, it's just uh, because it, it's easier to say when you've never been in a position where you're extremely helpless. Yeah. I like times where like I've, I've, you know, people see me in the chair 
they think I'm, I'm an easy target. And, but then I have someone, they don't see another person come and help me out. So they kind of, I've been in situations where people are like approaching me, they walk away because they see someone else, not knowing that I'm already strapped in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's more so me being disabled and feeling a little bit vulnerable compared to the regular uh, rather than being Asian. Your journey is, um, it's quite a journey. You know, I hope there's people out there listening uh, that feel motivated to get off their ass in really poor, poor choice of words. Um, but to get motivated to do something with their life mm. and know that you can't let this shit get to you, you know, that you can. Um, kind of final thought here. There are a lot of people out there that are in a really similar situation to you in their life. Mm. Um, how it happened, I mean, it, it's one thing. But a lot of people do go through that and go through a struggle. And not as not many of them get out of it as positively as you do. Mm. Not many of them are able to deal with the anxiety and the pressure um, like how well as you have. If you had to give them a word of advice, what it would be? Don't be scared to ask for help. That's the number one thing that I've realized that helped me out tremendously. Just sure, I want to do. You want to do things on your own, but if you can humble yourself, have a little bit of humility, and say, "Hey, it's okay for me to ask help," just to get you to start taking baby steps, it'll go a long way. Because there's gonna be someone out there who's open to give you their time and be like, "Yeah, you're worth," you know, "I don't mind helping me out," or "I don't mind," you know, like for example, a mentor and mentee. He, he doesn't really have to help the mentee for the most part, but he's going out of his way. There's gonna be somewhere out there that's willing to help you if you can't really find the the urge or the motivation in yourself just gonna ask for help um there's nothing wrong with it um because you know like i remember going into a grocery store i couldn't even reach the top shelf and mm. i almost like i almost like ball i was like damn this is what my life's gone to and then i was like i started let the humility down i just asked the guy like hey can you can you just help me reach that and he's he was more than happy he's like hey do you need anything else can i help you around and that if you're in a situation like my myself yeah, asking for help will help you take those baby steps and get a little bit more comfortable and start making the changes that you need. That's awesome. Yeah. Final plug, maybe a little quick plug on your restaurant. Yeah. And uh, what you got going on over there. Sure. Hey, so we are Mocha Korean Fried Chicken located in Midtown Atlanta, Georgia, right next to the Taco Mac and Sweet Hut building. We serve a variety of Korean fried chicken. Um, and we have validated parking, which is a huge thing in Midtown. Come check us out. We have everything from, you know, tenders, wings, fried chicken sandwiches, bone and chicken. If you like it classic, we actually have a, a sweet and spicy pork rice bowl called Tejibrugogi Tapap as well, too. We'd love to have you. We have chicken and beer specials all the time as well, too. And it'd be a great um, thing for you guys to experience what we have to offer and share a little bit that, of that to your circles around town. You got that down <laughs> and definitely check out his instagram it's pretty awesome and maybe one day youtube oh yeah maybe we'll which see. i think i would really enjoy watching thank you for coming out of course thank you for having me it's such an opportunity awesome thank you bro awesome bro Woo. Good job. seriously fucking crushed it wow that, that was fun you like that i feel like we can go for hours yeah that's Dude, what I, I gotta keep